Hi, this is Mark from Dragon Force. This is Nora from Battle Beast. This is Jarvis Leatherby from the band Night Demon. Hey guys, this is Thomas from Camelot. This is Ida from Trisphere, and you are listening to the Great Metal Debate Podcast. Hey podcast listeners, welcome back to the show for another Metal Artist interview. I'm joined by John and Tony of West Coast Power Metal Clan Judicator. Thank you all so much for joining us on The Great Metal Debate. Excellent to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. We're excited. Now, for folks who aren't familiar with Judicator, can you give us briefly the origin story of the band? Yeah, absolutely. Um, To put it Pretty briefly, we, we met at a uh, Blind Guardian concert in 2010. Uh, I was there seeing my buddies in Seven Kingdoms open for Blind Guardian. And of course, Blind Guardian is one of my favorite bands. Uh, John had driven down with his dad to see the show because it was uh, the only way he was going to see him because they didn't go to his area. And uh, I bumped into him at the start of the show, and he was hanging out real early in the venue, and he was there by himself. And I said, dude, why don't you just come backstage with us? And uh <laughs> You know, instead of hanging outside here in, in the middle of the desert. Um, and, of course, he came right along, and we went backstage, got to see Soundcheck, got to see one of our favorite bands play, and we got to talking and swapped information and connected uh, after the show of, a few months later and and got to talking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool to start, um, you know, a power metal band just like uh, in the vein of Blind Guardian and all that music that, that uh, brought us together in the first place. And from there, we made our first album, which was a really quick demo project uh, in a bedroom. And <laughs> people started listening to it, and we were like, hey, maybe we're onto something here. And we decided to keep going and keep escalating things until we find ourselves here. You mentioned the term power metal. Broadly, what is it you all are trying to accomplish musically with the band Judicator? What is the sound you're trying to create? Um, for me, uh, I my favorite kind of metal is stuff that's obviously melodic um, and, and fast and riff oriented, but also um, not not confined to like uh, you know some people are very like it has to be old school death metal or it has to be old school thrash metal or, or whatever it is. And while we definitely root ourselves in the old school power metal um we like taking that in a modern context so uh but still keeping like the riff based orientation and the song based orientation with the strong choruses and lots of vocal layering um so really just keeping that old school power metal vibe alive but also you know not being afraid to pull in our other influences outside of the the primary thing lyrically judicator has some clear historical themes in your albums Other bands, Sabaton comes to mind, have had a lot of success with that. Can you speak to both the challenges and uh, the possibilities of employing historical narratives in the music? Uh, The tough thing is always finding... Well, so every Judicator album is, of course, a concept album. And so whatever I'm nerding out on at the time that we are in development for the album... uh, 
of course, you need to choose material that fits the mood of the album that we are working on. And uh, once that is done, of course, the tricky thing is to <clears throat> find the songs that best fit each um, period in. Or... So it's just a matter of finding like what parts of the story you want to tell fit with each song and um, making it all mesh together in a way that's cohesive and uh, fits the flow of the album, I guess. And, of course, doing all the research and homework to make sure it's <laughs> historically accurate and a good story. Is that a big part of it, just that you have these colorful, full stories that lend themselves to creating on the musical side alongside the story? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the easy part is <clears throat> there is such a wealth of historical um, information to draw from. Uh, I think the trick is just telling it in a way that has not really been done before and using information that if it has, if the story has been told before, drawing on information and stories and anecdotes that have not been told before. And I think um, case in point is Rome. Like the way that King of Rome tells Napoleon's return from exile covers a lot of material that was not covered in, for instance, the uh, old movie Waterloo. So I think that adds a little bit of uh, value to the content. <laughs> we mentioned power metal earlier, and the genre issue or question is one that gets a lot of play, and it's a topic that we often debate on this podcast. From your all's perspective as artists, to what extent is it appropriate to use those category markers to identify musical styles, and, and to what extent do you think it's not a valid discussion? Uh, so for me, I uh, I just having spent a lot of time in subgenre discussion over the years, uh, I think there is a point and purpose to genre classification, and then I think that there is a point where people get absurd. <laughs> so for mm. me, I think that there's there's enough talk uh, in the communities of music to agree upon what the main genres are, and then you know, like nobody's going to argue with you that thrash metal is a genre, and nobody's going to argue with you that what the defining characteristics of it are. I think where people get tripped up is when you start hearing them say that this is uh, this is dark symphonic pirate metal. <laughs> uh, you know, and they start they start getting into to like things that are more stylistic descriptions, um, and it's fine to have stylistic descriptions. And I very I, I differentiate style from genre because genre to me is like your foundation, your building blocks, whereas style is like the things that you decorate your house with. Um, um, so, for instance, you know we play power metal, right? Um, but if you were going to call it like historical power metal that's it's not really a genre it's just a description of the style but some people will will act like things like that are actual genre classifications when really it, to me it's more about the fundamental building blocks of of the genre and then you'll get weird things where people try to misattribute genres and and some lines are definitely blurred like especially when you look at like the 80s is a great time to look at because so many genre tags flew around and like went from various 
style to style, like people called Venom black metal when they first started because of their, you know, um, eponymous album. But nobody would really call that style black metal today if it came out. Or, for instance, uh, everything was speed metal in the 80s. And now it's, it's hard to hear anybody really call anything straight up speed metal these days because it's a more nebulous term that got applied to a lot of different things. And a lot of things that were called speed metal in the 80s ended up being death metal and thrash metal and power metal um, as they developed more. So I think time helps us define those things more. But then I think people get a little too in their, um, I want to call them fan clubs, <laughs> their little fandoms. And they get they get way too absurdly specific. And I think it misses the point at that point. Like genres are useful to help us identify tastes and categorize things so that we can easily link them to each other. But when you get too specific and too away from the things that people generally talk about, I think you kind of miss the point. And then that's when I check out of the conversation. Do you ever run into fans who at times are just super into what you're doing because of the genre identification? Or do you find more often than not it tends to limit and maybe prevent fans from taking a listen where they might actually enjoy your music? I think in both cases, so definitely, power metal is an interesting genre um, in a modern context, because especially being a power metal band from the United States, especially being a power metal band from a state where, one, there aren't many metal bands from to begin with, and two, where there certainly are, are no power metal bands except for a couple of bands that have some demos out, um, it's very interesting because, one, it immediately brings attention to you because of the genre like oh wow there's like german style power metal from arizona that's crazy so people like pay attention to that however it's it's all it's like you mentioned on the flip side power metal has certain stigmas around it so that prevents some people from looking at it they go oh power metal that's uh that's like sonata artica right um i'm not going to listen to that and lo and behold we sound nothing like them um so it kind of works both ways. In some ways, it pulls people to you, um, and in other ways, it can drive people away, especially one that's – I'd say power metal is one of the geekier fringe genres of, <laughs> of, the, uh, of the metal genre, um, and it has some certain stereotypes attached to it. Um, and to me, like, every genre has those stereotypes, but they get played up more in power metal just because it tends to be on the more over-the-top theatrical side of things. Um, so I'd say there's both pros and cons, um, and it's just been interesting to me to see, you know, the both sides of it, and especially having played a lot of different uh, genres in my musical career. I've, I've played in just about any type of metal band. I've done country. I've played pop music for a little bit. I've done session work on rap music, um, just kind of all over the place, and I've never quite found that um, level of, uh, I'll call it genreism. <laughs> as there is in power metal. Um, and, and it's interesting, like it's, it's kind of endearing in a way too, um, because it is a more fringe genre. It definitely doesn't have much of a following in the States, but I'd say it swings both ways. And uh, I just enjoy seeing the, the different reactions based on it. And the cooler thing to me is when people's expectations are subverted one way or the other, like they'll go in and be like, Oh man, this is power metal. This is going to suck. And then they hear that, you know, it's, got a lot of influences from maybe 
something that they that they like that's not power metal, and then they go, oh wow, I actually really like this. Or on the flip side, it's also kind of entertaining to me when somebody goes into it expecting um, Rhapsody of Fire or something. And while I love that band, we don't sound anything like them, and I can definitely not play guitar like that. Uh, and, and then they go in and they're like, oh nope, this is crap. I don't like this. Uh, I thought I was gonna like it based on what it what it was labeled, but nope, that's not for me. And that's just really interesting to me when those expectations are kind of turned on their head. You mentioned some other styles of music. I wonder if each of you could speak for a moment about your respective musical backgrounds. Did you grow up in musical environments, and did either of you receive any formal training? Um, yeah, I took formal vocal lessons for about six years, and I took that experience and gave lessons myself for a number of years off and on, and that was a great experience. Uh, since I was a kid, I've been playing guitar, piano mostly, but I also did um, trumpet and trombone throughout high school and junior high, but I never carried that out beyond um, after graduating. Um, so, yeah, I've been very focused on vocals since then, trying to stay in my lane. You know, I'd rather be really good at one thing than um, spread out my time and energy across other instruments. Yeah, um, speaking to my musical background a bit, um, I grew up in partially in Arizona, but I'm from Bristol, Tennessee, so I grew up around uh, a lot of country music, and uh, my uncle was the lap steel guitar player for Charlie Bride until he unfortunately passed away, so uh, there was a strong kind of musical background in my family. My dad was a, is, is a record collector, you know, when I was a kid, we used to look through his final records and listen to all his classic rock records, and uh, that's how I got into Deep Purple and Uriah Heep and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, that slowly branched out into finding heavy metal later, which is where I kind of found my identity, you know, despite being exposed to to those other influences. But having that kind of diverse, different cultural background um, definitely caused me to experiment and explore different things as I was learning the guitar. Um, I took... I didn't take formal guitar lessons, but I took formal um, music theory lessons. So I, I self-taught guitar, um, but then I took a lot of music theory education throughout high school and uh, my college education, which isn't in music, but I took a lot of my, um, what do you call them, electives, electives in, <laughs> in uh, music, like uh, certain, I did a few jazz theory classes, a few general music theory classes, just to keep up my, uh, I call it professional development. <laughs> in the musical field. Um, so I've just always been curious to learn and see how that applies to the things that I like and, um, you know, see how the bands that I like incorporate different influences and, and make it into something that we all, you know, share and love. Well, guys, let's turn from the past to the present and talk a moment about your latest album, The Last Emperor, released just this past March. Uh, what's been the response so far to that album? Uh, uh, for for me, it's been the it's been the biggest response we've had. We've definitely seen our our fan base grow quite a bit. Um, we've seen more engagement, more. Um, I mean, the number of reviews is much higher. The number of records we're getting asked to send for promotional stuff is is much higher. We've um, 
we uh, worked with Alone Records on a vinyl release, which just released the other day. So that was a huge benchmark for us. I, uh, I'm, a, I'm very into vinyl myself, so having my own record come out on that medium was uh, I, something I knew I'd never afford on myself just because it's such a cost-intense uh, medium to do in low production runs. And having that happen was really cool. Um, of course, having... Auntie Kirsch on the album was a, a dream come true, uh, just like made my head spin a little bit to get to work with my favorite metal singer. Um, and then overall, like there was kind of some trepidation on our part going from our last album to this one, because our last album was much more progressive and personal in nature. And this album was just like a straight for the throat, punch you in the face, power metal album. Um, so we were kind of nervous, like, oh, maybe people... You know, you know, because our last album got us a lot more attention than our, our first two did. And, you know, we were nervous that maybe, like, the straightforward style wouldn't resonate with people. Because um, it was a bit of a change-up. And actually, a lot of people are going, like, actually, this album is, we like the last one and we like this one more. And some people still prefer the other one, and that's great. I personally prefer At the Expense of Humanity. But um, just to see that some people... <laughs> A lot of the overwhelming response has been like, yep, this is you guys in your prime, this is you in your top form, has been really, um, after a lot of nervousness around the album, made that payoff really great to feel like, oh, wow, we really are working in the right direction, the decision, like the hard work that we put into it is definitely, you know, those were smart decisions, and it's nice to see people uh, appreciate that and engage with that and have it open new opportunities for us as well. Yeah, I would say that, the biggest relief for me was that nervousness around a follow-up to At the Expense of Humanity, which was reviewed so well. You have that worry that, man, anything we come up with after a high watermark like that is going to be crapped on, or people are always going to be saying it's good, but not as good as that. And we haven't had as much of that. Um, it's been a very positive response, and so I'm very thrilled and happy and relieved because I I love the album, and it seems like everybody else does. So in addition to all of the like real world um, uh, benefits we've had, like Tony mentioned, just on a personal level, it's very rewarding. So were the changes from the last album at the expense of humanity, was that an attempt to maybe go back to the roots or was that just where you were at when you were writing the last emperor? It was sort of, for me, it was, you go first, John. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. Um, it was sort of a great way to take the spirit from our first two albums, which did not have um, the best production quality, and put it into a new, fresh perspective with top-of-the-line production and um, still a historical approach like the first two albums. Yeah, I think John hit it on the head. It was um, For me, it was taking the lessons learned from those two albums and then doing it with, you know, five more years of experience, a heck of a lot more resources, um, kind of with, instead of just a, an idea that we did what we could with making it, um, you know, its full version of itself with all of our best cards on the table, um, basically bringing that full potential out, which is actually why we decided to re-record the song King of Rome from our first album, because it's a song that's very important to us, and that's why we chose to make a video to it rather than a song from The Last Emperor itself, just because it's it's sort of a subtle nod um, to that. And our, our next album or three probably will sound nothing in this direction, um, because 
like for me personally, like I feel like I, I accomplished what I wanted to do in that direction, which was to just have a really gutsy, fun to the point, um, power metal record with all those musical lessons and professional lessons learned from our first three adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel that the response has definitely validated that. So it was, it was definitely like a little bit of an intentional, like let's take a step back um, and do it better this time, do it the best we can this time. You talk about the development of the sound and the production quality. Can you talk a little bit more about that as far as when you look back to where you were for those first two albums production-wise and just what you could envision? Uh, do you look back and say, oh, man, I'm embarrassed at that? Or, or do you just feel like that was kind of the raw, undiluted place you were at at that point? Yeah, I, I definitely don't feel um, embarrassed by it. I mean... I, I don't know that our first album is what I'd call super listenable from a production standpoint. Um, the second one I don't have too many qualms about, but they were also made very quick on a $0 production budget. <laughs> um, so to me, they, uh, they, they're, they're kind of neat representations of where we where were. Because the first album we recorded as like something between us that we didn't think anyone was going to listen to, so... You know, we did it in three weeks on our laptops, and we put it up on Bandcamp, and we're like, gee, that was sure fun. See you later, man. Um, and then people started listening to it, and people started buying it. And, um, uh, you know, they, we eventually got enough demand for a CD pressing, and it sold out instantly. And all these reviews kept coming in, and we're like, wow, that happened with that much effort. Gee, I wonder what would happen if we took a little more a little more of a serious turn on to, which was our, our second album, which was us basically doing the same thing as the first, but taking our time this time um, and doing it a little more seriously. And it still definitely had opportunities. Um, and we're actually looking at remixing and remastering and then punching in some re-records of some specific parts of that album um, just to get something that's a little more on par with our last two out of it. This is like a year from now we're talking, but... Uh, I definitely think it's a cool representation of what you can do on limited resources when all you really have is your your passion for the music. Um, and then just the fact that people engaged with that and latched onto it. Like I, I've recorded plenty of other albums in a similar fashion that no one ever listened to. Um, so just to see people latch onto the music whether in spite of that or because of that um, and then to actually use it as a launch point into better things like who knew that recording a demo quality album would lead to us collaborating with blind guardian for instance like that's just unfathomable to me uh when i look back on it so for me i feel a point of pride on those first two albums even if it's not apparent from listening to like uh, a cut from the king of rome album um i think the story is there and i think the narrative is very cool in and of itself so should I take that to mean that you all are pleased with what you did re-recording the King of Rome song, that you are considering doing that with some additional older tracks? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was fun to bring that to life, for sure. Um, just to hear it, like, with the big production and, like, the vocal layers, and then to get to shoot a music video, because um, we always love playing that one live. It's our closing song, and people love singing along to it. And so to put that... Um, in that updated context, that was just that was probably one of the funnest, like most heartwarming things about this album cycle. 
Yeah, I'm very proud of what we did with the first two albums. They're not like professional quality production, but there's a lot of heart and soul in there. Like Tony said, the the story is all there, and it's really heartful and soulful. Um, and man, I tell you, I wish that we had unlimited time and resources because, <laughs> to be honest, there's a lot of there's probably a handful of songs that I would love to re-record off of King of Rome and even Sleepy Plesso. But like Tony mentioned before, we're in the works with something to uh, touch up Sleepy Plesso. So we're going to try to do what we can on that. You mentioned earlier the vocal contribution from the legendary Hansi from Blind Guardian on the track Spiritual Trees. And how did that collaboration come about? Um, I worked with Hansi before on a song in a band that I was in called Dysphoria back in 2014. And uh, since then, we've become pen pals. Whenever he comes through the U.S. with Blind Guardian, we hang out. Tony and I hung out with him when they came through Colorado in 2015, I think. Um, so since then, I've really wanted to get him onto Adjudicator track. And luckily, the stars kind of aligned for The Last Emperor and Hanzi's schedule. So we were able to get him on. Um, and I love the guy. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've offered on a couple of occasions to pay him, and he accepts no money. So that means a lot to yeah, yeah. He he's one of the few people who walks the walk and talks the talk as far as uh, supporting um, local artists and young musicians and stuff like that. That's amazing to have that level of support and contribution from someone who really is a legend and whose work stands on its own. That. It must be incredible to have that kind of relationship. And also, I would think, would put you in the position where you would hope someday to be in the position to help someone else out as well. Yeah, that's definitely what I think it's all about, is <clears throat> planting those seeds of kindness and hoping that they take root within the people that you uh, try to instill that and always try to pay it forward. Now, the songs on The Last Emperor... Were those all written to the release, or had you had some of those songs in the works years before, maybe leftovers from previous album writing sessions? Um, pretty much everything from The Last Emperor musically was written shortly after I finished writing At the Expense of Humanity, which was probably sometime in like mid-2014. Um, the album actually went through a lot of re rewrites, because um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with it. Um, we had talked about doing some different material before doing this, um, and actually one of the songs, as as late as um, February of last year, got rewritten entirely. Um, so it went through a few different versions, but it, it started pretty much right after the um, At the Expense of Humanity production wrapped it up. And I usually work on songs over the course of years like the our next album has stuff that i've been working on since probably 2013 i want to say um, and it just depends on where the material is at in its in its particular time and uh, where it's at development wise and how it fits into a certain album so some songs have kind of like flip-flopped um between different potential albums that were working on so for instance we have our fifth album already musically written john's been working on the lyrics and the vocal melodies the last few weeks 
Um, but the song Nothing But Blood off of The Last Emperor was actually supposed to be on that first. Um, and it just turned out that like it felt like it fit better on this album. Um, so we pulled it over to this material and you know threw out another song that didn't feel as strong just because it, it you kind of listen to songs next to each other when you're when you're writing a concept album and you look for what flows the best for the kind of story you're going for so uh since it's not about the individual song but like how well does it sit between the two songs around it how does it fit in the overall album um so that can be a determining factor for sure that will cause us to like maybe hang on to a song for a year or two or you know generate completely new material um, whatever it happens to be. So Last Emperor definitely went through some strenuous rewrites and at the expense of humanity had stuff that I've been working on for six or seven years since even before, um, even before Judicator was a band. But, you know, you, every musician kind of has their like riff fault <laughs> that they work through. So um, you pull from that. But yeah, Last Emperor was gen- generally fresh material and we pulled some stuff from some other projects we've been working on. And is that your fairly consistent process for Judicator, that you would write the music and then the lyrics would be added at the last part, or is that simply the process that you employed in Last Emperor? Yeah, typically I will write all the music to the album first, and then John will take it and he will listen to it. And he's always got ideas in his head, and I'm, I'm sure he'll say more about it. And then based on how the music is pinging, determines the lyrical theme and then he builds the lyrical and vocal melodies off of that and if we need to go back and and change things to fit things we will you know sometimes uh i'll go back and like change a guitar harmony or move where a guitar solo is supposed to be or we'll repeat a section more to fit more vocals in or condense a section down if there we didn't feel like it needed that much space um, make those minor adjustments but the bulk of the music you know 90 percent of it is written beforehand and then the lyrics afterwards yeah, generally I'll receive the album like Tony said, and then I'll mull over various ideas that I would have had at that point. Um, I've had a couple of ideas, one of which I've been mulling around for a long time, but I ultimately decided it wasn't quite yet time to use on this album. So we've actually decided to go with an idea for the next album that is complementary to The Last Emperor, which is, so the Crusades were, of course, a Roman Catholic endeavor. So then we're going into Western Roman like endeavor, um, essentially. So then we're going to flip on the next album to the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, being the Byzantines. So it's going to be sort of a neat way to uh, maintain continuity with the content, but also allow for a progression between the musical styles of the albums. We've had several metal acts from the West Coast on the podcast. The guys in Holy Grail, Jarvis from Night Demon, Heather from Grave Shadow, the folks in Adivant. What's the metal scene like out on that end of the country? And especially given the, the distances you don't have out here on the eastern side of the country, how challenging is it to put tours together where you can get out to see fans? It's uh Playing live is extremely strenuous for us because we're not in the same location. So John lives in Salt Lake City, and the rest of the band lives in Tucson, which are about 1,200 miles apart. Um, so that's a logistical challenge in and of itself. And then, you know, to drive anywhere of note from Tucson or even from Salt Lake City, it's 
some of our drives on our last tour were 16 hours. Um, you know, we, we drove something like 6,000 miles on our last tour, and it was a very small tour. It was, it was two weeks, just uh, six shows. So it took that much effort um, for to get to that many places where there's enough of a scene for us to have a, a worthwhile show. And fortunately, all those places we go, you know, Portland, um, Denver, Salt Lake City, uh, Long Beach, L.A., Sacramento, they've all got really strong scenes. De- uh, Denver is, is incredible as far as the plethora of talent there and um, amazing fans that are there. But uh, it's a challenge logistically to get there and, um, and to make it financially viable. Um, and then the amount of time you need to travel those distances. Uh, so it's very, very difficult for us to tour. We only played, uh, you know, 15 some shows in total. We've been pretty much everywhere on the West Coast, Southwest, um, a, li- a little bit of the Pacific Northwest. We went out as far as Florida um, a f- few years ago, uh, but we haven't done any touring recently um, just because of how tough it can be to get to get together and uh we're kind of at this point you know we'll do some one-off shows you know play play here maybe play in uh denver or something like that um but we're kind of uh not i don't want to use the phrase saving ourselves but uh being (laughs) really really picky about how we play live just because when you're when you're in a band like this like the band is financially viable um as long as we're smart about it, but all it takes is one bad business decision to potentially like cripple our ability to, to produce music. Um, so like right now, the last Emperor has been a very good album cycle for us. The last tour cycle is very uh, good for us. If I make the wrong decision in how we approach playing live, that might delay the next album by three, four years or potentially, you know, become a personal financial burden, which I'm, I'm always willing to invest my, my own money. That's how the band started. You know, you invest a little, you got to spend money to make money. Um, and I wish it wasn't as, you know, driven by business decisions as it is, especially at our lower level in comparison to, to, you know, bands like, um, bands that go and play sold out tours in Europe. Um, but it can be, the difference between being able to keep doing what you like doing or what you love doing and not doing it at all. So uh, if we want to keep producing great albums, we have to make sure that we have the financial viability to do that. So that means making smart live decisions. So doing a DIY tour of 20 shows across the United States and taking a month off from our jobs might <laughs> could go really well or it could go really bad. So uh, we always have to be careful and fortunately my background is in business and I've got a good eye for logistics and stuff. And, but sometimes it's like, wow, I'd really like to do this, but I know if I do this, like album five might not happen. So when I say we're saving ourselves, we're looking for those opportunities where either the financial cost is, is good or the, the non-financial benefits outweigh the financial burden. So like there's some bigger tour opportunities that that might come our way at some point. Um, we've talked about a few options that, you know, they would hurt financially, but the, the practical non-financial gain of it, the musical gain of it, the experience gain, the, uh, 
exposure gain far outweighs that, that would be the right decision to make. Or if it's a worthwhile festival, and we've talked about uh, uh, playing a few next year, there's there's three that we're looking at potentially, and one unfortunately is probably not going to happen. Um, but they have, all have the discussion point of like, hey, this might be worth it. We should really realistically look at what we need to do to make this happen and what the results of that would be. You were the one who mentioned Europe, so I have to ask about that because I could see stylistically there's got to be a lot of people across the pond who would be very excited to hear you all live. Is is that something that you're that's even kind of in the margins of your consideration going over to Europe? Yeah, we um, there's nothing concrete right now, but we have made you know you kind of have your in case of emergency break glass plan. Um, for when the stars align for those opportunities. So we, uh, just speaking to where our merchandise sells, like the vast majority of it sells to Europe. Um, most of our CDs go to Europe. Um, all of our distribution deals are in Europe. Um, the record label that's producing our our vinyl release is in Europe um, and distributes all throughout Europe. So uh, while we do have a really good local following, Stateside in our regional area, um, definitely, I think, if one of those opportunities came about and some of the ones we've talked about, it would most likely be on that side of the pond. So we've made the kind of, we've had the kind of come to Jesus, sit down, talk about, okay, when this happens, have we looked at every angle of our <laughs> lives and financial status and agreed that we can make this work? And yep, okay, we know what we have to do in this situation. So um, if Mr. Opportunity comes rocking, comes knocking with the, you know, the right deal. Um, we're making sure that we're in the position to take that. Well, I think that would be awesome. I'm, I'm among those who is uh, has my fingers crossed that that'll happen for you because I know that would be a tremendous opportunity and that uh, fans in Europe would would love to hear you guys. Wrapping up with you this evening, what is the best way for fans to purchase music and merchandise from Judicator, including the latest album, The Last Emperor? So for people in the States, our Bandcamp is definitely the best way to do it, cheapest way to do it. You can get uh, all our CDs there, our T-shirts, all that good stuff, digital versions. Of course, everything's on Amazon, iTunes, all that good stuff. Uh, For people overseas, we've got... um, our albums at the expense of humanity is available through dive bomb records through several international distributors. So it's on all the different Amazon and eBay outlets. Um, alone records from Greece is carrying the last emperor. Um, we'll have the vinyl release. So that'll be available on the European side so that they don't, you know, you don't have to pay $20 to shipping through our band camp. So I prefer people get the, the music the most effective way possible. Um, of course, if you want to go directly to the band, go through our Bandcamp, judicatormetal.bandcamp.com. Um, and if you want a T-shirt, that's the only place to go <laughs> uh, for the moment. Um, and then, yeah, for digital outlets, all the normal standard distribution. So whichever one works best for you and cheapest for you, that's the one I recommend. Well, I want to encourage fans to do just that. Check out this latest album, The Last Emperor. Uh, pick up that merch. This is a band worth supporting. Help get them across over to Europe. Guys, thank you all so much for joining us on The Great Metal Debate. Thank you so much for having us. It was a lot of fun. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you.